0: Well, most people in high school, at least as I remembered it, uh, hate history class. I think there's European history in 10th grade, and then American history in 11th grade. And uh, for whatever reason, though, I don't know why, I always loved studying history. And to most, I think it comes across as just this senseless memorization of facts and dates of people who are long gone but I was always just fascinated by ancient civilizations, how they lived, what they knew, what they believed. And there are some really unbelievable, but true stories of the rise and fall of nations in, in history. And you, you get a, a bit of that in the Bible, obviously specifically concerning the nation of Israel. The Bible has some pretty meaty historical books. You just, you just put together Second Samuel, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, Altogether, that's 167 chapters. It's, it is a lot of uh, history in there. Many avoid that part of the Bible. Perhaps they find it like high school class, just boring history, dates, people who are long gone. Well, that's where the Bible's version of events is is doubly enthralling. I mean, for one, just a lot of the, the stories contained in Scripture are pretty action-packed and and gripping. But at the same time, these aren't just plain stories, and this isn't just plain history. These records all have a point. Because in Scripture, we're not really learning the history of Israel. We're learning the history of God and His relation to the world. And that, for any Christian, that should be enough to pique your interest. I want to know the history of this God and His interaction with this world. And that's what Scripture gives us. It doesn't always mean things go well. History records the rise and fall of every ancient civilization, and Israel is no exception. That's what you get in the books of First and Second Kings, which we come to study tonight. But Israel's rise and fall are unlike that of any other nation. God Himself is behind both, blessing and prospering Israel for their obedience, yet directly cursing them and judging them for their disobedience. By the end of Second Kings, Israel has fallen. All seems lost, but all hope is not lost precisely because God, as we're learning his history, is forever faithful to his word, his covenant, his promise. Even when his people are unfaithful, his word remains true. He will one day restore and revive this nation. All that and more comes through in 1st, 2nd Kings. In Sunday nights, we're going through the Old Testament one book at a time. And I think we're pretty much going to continue with that. I thought about doing... 1st, 2nd Samuel together, but they proved too much. And the same for 1st, 2nd Kings. We'll, we'll do them one at a time. 1st Kings and then 2nd Kings. It really is an artificial division anyway. They were written as one book, just the, the book of Kings. Same author, same theme, same purpose. Really was just one book. And s- treating them separately gives us a little extra time to slow down and actually get into the text and at least survey some of the key passages. It's something I like to do you just just study just pure background. You're really talking about the Bible or you're not really studying the Bible. And I want to try and get us at least into some of these passages. Although we still have a lot of ground to, to cover. And tonight now we're going to get into 1 Kings. Just finished 2 Samuel last week. And this picks up right where 2 Samuel ends. David, the king, he's not died yet, but he's in his final days. He's going to transition to Solomon. And Solomon, his king or the next king truly will usher in a golden age for Israel. This is really the rise of Israel, Israel at its peak. We see the reign of Solomon. It's the first half of first Kings. Things in a sense go well, but that's not going to last. Immediately thereafter, the kingdom divides and we start to see the demise of Israel and Judah in the south and second Kings. We see the end of Israel and then the end of Judah. What follows after the division are a couple hundred years of sin, idolatry, immor- immorality, and apostasy. And Second Kings ends, uh, or by the time Second Kings ends, it's, it's all over. The temple's destroyed. Jerusalem's destroyed. They've lost the land the kings are done for. They're in exile in Babylon. But there's a ray of hope, as we'll see as we go on. For now, we're going to get into First Kings, see how this all plays out. You can open your Bibles there. We'll get to it in a minute. We're going to start, though, with some, as we typically do, basic background, just to give you some of those background facts about really both of these books. You know, the title in English is 1st, 2nd Kings, but again, in Hebrew, it's just one book, the book of the Kings. Now, the, the later Greek version is because they were dealing with a limit to scroll sizes. They arbitrarily cut it in half and made it two books, and they actually combined it with Samuel where they called Samuel first and second kingdoms. They called Kings third and fourth kingdoms. Of note though, it's it's clear they saw, as we can likewise see that that the the, the events and the purpose of these books go hand in hand. Samuel really is meant to be read along with Kings. There's a flow of thought throughout. The author, we don't really know for sure. Jewish tradition pegged it as the great prophet Jeremiah, who lived in and through that, that exile to Babylon. That's possible. We don't know for sure. Whatever it is, we know it seems to bear a single author, someone who witnessed the fall of Jerusalem personally, lived through it. That would include Jeremiah. But by the time of Second Kings, Israel had not returned from captivity yet. So it seems to be written sometime before that return from exile. And it's someone who has access to royal records because three primary sources are listed in 1st, 2nd Kings the book of the Acts of Solomon, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, and the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And royal scribes would have kept an ongoing written record of the kings, how long they reigned, some of their notable deeds. And the author of Kings seems to have, uh, be compiling these records, but he's doing so in a way and being inspired as he writes through God's, hand, God's spirit. He's doing so in such a way as to emphasize really a a theological interpretation of Israel's history. And part of this history we see through emphasis, the author clearly favors the prophets. This is where the prophets really come to the forefront. So far, we haven't seen a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament. But but here that changes. The prophets are clearly the good guys. The kings are the bad guys. The, the, the prophets represented And regarded God's word, the kings did not. So whether it's Jeremiah or someone else, the author is probably one of those prophets. He's living in exile in Babylon and reflecting back on on what just happened. Speaking of, when you think about the audience, this was written to Israel in exile. I mean the exile was a huge deal, it was a monumental shift in Israel's history. Many were questioning like, how could God let this happen? Well, 1st and 2nd Kings was written to explain how. And God didn't just let it happen. God caused it to happen on purpose as a form of his predicted curse and judgment on Israel for the disobedience and largely apostasy and idolatry. And in Kings, we find an explanation for Israel's suffering. But again, there's a tiny ray of hope in the closing words reminding Israel that, that the Davidic lineage has not been wiped out as God promised. And that is their hope because one from that line, a son of David will be the one to restore and revive Israel. Israel was in so much trouble because they did not keep God's covenant, but God's more faithful in that. Even when they're faithless, he is faithful. He will hold on to his ultimate promises and bring them to pass. And second Kings ends on a little note of that. Well, the date covers from the death of David, It's about 970 B.C. to the release of Jehoiachin, 561 B.C. I mean, it's almost 400 years in these books. This covers a lot of ground. But again, you pay attention to where things slow down. And there's a few notable kings where the action really slows down. The ministry of Elijah and Elisha, the the timeline really slows down. It shows you that the places where the author thinks are most significant in Israel's history. We'll see that as we get into it. And just cover the, the setting. If you're not familiar with 1st, 2nd Kings, a, a little word on, on the setting will help you kind of get up to speed. We're in the land of Israel. and traces the history, now really of two nations. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they split. They became basically separate nations. We begin with the death of David. We cover the reign of Solomon. Immediately after, the kingdom splits in two. And then 1st Kings starts to trace you know, all the different succession of kings in the north and the south and what they did. And it ends up, though, how, telling us how both nations were destroyed. They both were exiled and conquered, and we find out why. Northern Israel was less stable, very volatile. They went through many violent coups and takeovers. The northern Israel lasted just 209 years before they were destroyed by the Assyrians. Every single one of the kings of northern Israel was found to be evil and wicked and did not serve the Lord. Judah in the south fared a little bit better. David's dynasty remained strong, but they had their fair share of likewise wicked kings. Judah lasted 345 years before the Babylonians took them out, but David's line was still preserved. Overall, 1st and 2nd Kings gives us the chronicles of all the kings of Israel and Judah. in and combined with 1st, 2nd Samuel, we've got the complete record of every king that reigned over Israel and Judah until the exile. But again, this is not just a simple list of facts. We're not given a, like a spreadsheet of the kings and how long they reigned and like some of the things they did. It's not what we, we get here. The author is making very clear points through Israel's true history. We know this because he goes so far as to pass a verdict on each and every king. This, 1st, 2nd Kings, it's a post-mortem on Israel's history. It's a look back. The author is showing us, showing Israel, and showing us just how, when, and why things went so wrong that now they're destitute in Babylon. How did this happen? Well, you're going to find out that you don't ever do this again, that you don't ever make these mistakes again He's going to explain. That's what we get in 1st, 2nd Kings. That's going to bring us right to the purpose. We're going to do another little synopsis, take, you know, take through an outline of the book. But I think again, like we did with 1st, 2nd Samuel, I think it's better to expose you to the author's purpose before we get into some of the details. We already hinted at it, but why was 1st, 2nd Kings written? What's the point? It's not just a record of events. The royal record already existed. But the author is drawing on some royal records for, for the history of the kings. You know, who reigned when and for how long, all, all the data. That's fine. But this author, this prophet, is giving a theological interpretation of these events and all the kings. He's writing after the fact. That's obvious. He talks about the fall of, of Jerusalem. He's writing after the reign of the king. So the time of the kings is no more. They've been deposed. Second Kings ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonian captivity. So it's, it's written after the, after the fact, and he's looking back. That by itself tells us something. The author is reflecting on the tragic history of Israel to, to make a point. Like I said before, that the Babylonian captivity was a watershed moment in Israel's history. It's like the Exodus, but in reverse. Think about the situation. And how big a deal this was for them. Just try and and put yourself in their shoes. The temple, Solomon's grand temple, destroyed. Jerusalem, the city, destroyed. The kings are deposed, and Israel lost the land. I mean, it sure seemed like all was lost. And Israel is asking the question, how could this be? I thought we were God's chosen people. I thought he promised us the land and promised us kings and all this, like how, how on earth could God let this happen? This was a huge identity crisis for national Israel. Like I said, 1 Kings was written to explain. And for one, it tells us how and why this happened. And the answer is not because the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians were stronger than Yahweh and he just couldn't overpower them. That's not why Israel lost the land, unlike what they probably thought. No, if God wanted, he could, he could end those nations and their armies in an instant. He did that to the Assyrians when they tried to take Jerusalem. Rather, Israel's demise came at God's own hand. God, Israel's God was behind this. Like, how could God let this happen? He didn't let it happen. He made it happen as a consequence. God, and we find this in the later prophets in their writings, but God raised up Assyria and Babylon as instruments of justice or judgment in his hands to bring discipline and and judgment on Israel. Why would God do that? Well, because of Israel's disobedience, they completely violated their covenant with God. And so covenant violation is a big theme in first and second Kings. Remember God's relationship with Israel with Israel was much different than his relationship with the other nations. They were his chosen nation. He gave them his word, his temple, his ark, his law, his priests, his covenant. Realize God in choosing Israel, God was putting some things on the line too meaning the reputation of his name. He was attaching his name, his reputation in the nations to this nation. That's why it mattered so much that they represented his name as he is holy. That's why they had to be holy because he's holy. And God promised them many blessings. If only they would regard God as holy and keep his word. But he also promised many curses. if They did not regard him holy or keep his word. And that's what's happening here. God's not going to ultimately wipe them all out. He can't do that because he made some unconditional promises to and through Abraham and then later David that he he will keep them as his nation forever. But that doesn't mean they'd be immune from discipline. Curses would come with their disobedience. That's what we see in 1st, 2nd Kings. Israel is not Holy. They're, they've become now characterized by all the wickedness and we're talking serious immorality, like on the level of child sacrifice akin to all the nations around them, not to mention idolatry. And God's patience was long, like hundreds of years long, but it, it comes to an end and they are deposed. So first and second Kings was written to, to convict Israel for their apostasy. They brought this destruction on themselves by turning their back on their God and, and violating his covenant. I mean, God sent them many prophets, that's another huge theme here. The ministry of the prophets comes front and center. That, that's just God's mercy to the people and to the kings. God left them a witness. He, he gave them his word. He called them to repent and return. And if they did, he would hear, heal, and forgive But time and time again, they they did not listen to the prophets. The prophets then started prophesying destruction, final warning. And that's exactly what came. Literal fulfillment to all those words of what would happen. And so now Israel is living in Babylon. They're licking their wounds. They're wondering why. Well, here's why. You're going to find out why. This is what happens when you abandon your God. And look, We'll talk application letter, but already like that still happens. Not in this national covenantal sense, but when you abandon your God, you go astray into idolatry, immorality. You ignore his word and all the warnings you've received in your life. And you just go your own way. And then you're sitting in the ash heap in ruin and living in the consequences of sin. You wonder like, how did I get here? This is how, this is what happens when you forsake your God, but he is faithful to those who follow him. Thankfully, he's also a God who forgives and restores. And his grace it would come back to Israel and still will someday. But you want to learn that lesson the easy way, not the hard way. And that's, well, you learn that lesson through Israel. That's why we have this in Scripture in part. We learn from there this this example. Now, one more thing. First second Kings was also written, though, to give Israel that glimmer of hope. And precisely because of God's covenant promises to them, Israel can have hope. Even when they're faithless, God is faithful, and he will still one day bring to pass all he has spoken concerning them. And these promises include, as we learned back in, in Samuel, a promised king. God promises or God's promises concerning Israel They no longer just go back to Abraham, but now they go back to David. And God God added some promises here that he will still one day raise up this perfect mediator king. One who can go before the people, intercede for them, represent them, lead them in true everlasting righteousness. That's what they need. And God's not forgotten his word to Israel they can be sure he'll bring it to pass. And despite all that's happened, that promise is still alive. They still have this hope that that one can come, a perfect king is, is still coming, a descendant of David to, to fix this, to fix this mess, to lead us back to, to glory. And that's clear in the final verses of 2 Kings. We'll, we'll read those verses next week, but just as a preview, it ends in a very interesting way. After the destruction of Israel, or Jerusalem, it tells us, though, that of Jehoiachin, who was the king. He's been deposed. He's living in exile in Babylon, but he's no longer a prisoner. He's been released. He he's regains a little bit of uh, influence. That's how Second Kings ends. The point is pretty clear, though. It's just letting us know this is the last remaining descendant of David, but he's still alive. He's not been cut off. The line of David has not been cut off, as God promised never would be. As long as he's still alive, he's not reigning. That's a, that's a consequence. But there's still hope that a son of David might still arise to basically fix this mess. That seed might come to deliver God's people. And that's that's what the later prophets make clear. Like That's what the people need. That, that's their only hope. First, second Kings teaches us that as well. The people need a perfectly righteous mediator king to lead them into God's blessing. But you read 1st, 2nd Kings yourself, none of the sons of David fit that description. None of the kings of Israel, none of the kings of Judah are that perfectly righteous mediator king. In fact, just the opposite. Every king of Israel is super evil and most of the kings of Judah are evil as well. That's why they're exiled. The problem with the kings, though, is not that they're not rich enough, not smart enough, not militarily powerful enough. The problem is that they're not holy enough. They're not righteous enough. That's what they need. Israel will never dwell securely in the land and enjoy God's blessing unless they're led by a perfect king. Someone who can even, as we find in the prophets, change their hearts And later prophets will fill in the blanks here, but this king that they need will be a Messiah, a Savior, even God with us. And thankfully though, because God's word is true and certain, Israel at least still has hope. Because God's promises never fail, hope is not lost. So if you can put all that together in synthesizing that the message of 1st, 2nd Kings, we would say 1st, 2nd Kings was written to rebuke Israel, and her kings for their continual covenant disobedience. Explaining their current judgment. Yet it was also written to give hope. That because God's word never fails, they will one day be restored. And if any if any Israelite wants to participate in that blessing and that restoration, they need only to repent and return to their God. And he will hear and forgive. Well, let's get into a little bit of that structure and that synopsis now of, of 1 Kings. We're only going to go through 1 Kings. It, there's enough content here, plenty for uh, a little bit of our time here. If you were with us, you know, I gave you a, just a really almost oversimplified outline of 1 2 Samuel, just a four-part high-level outline. I'll do the same for 1 2 Kings, a four-part high-level outline, just to help you split it up a little bit in your mind. We find first the golden age of Israel, 1 Kings 1 through 11. You get the, the good times, the golden age of Israel. But Then we find the decline of Israel and Judah, 1 Kings 12 through 22, the, the decline of Israel and Judah. You get next, uh, third, the end of Israel, 2 Kings 1 through 17. That this is where you just see Israel, northern Israel, they're over, 2 Kings 1 through 17. And then lastly, the, the end of Judah. Judah lasts a little bit longer, but in the end, they too will come to an end. The end of Judah. 2 Kings 18 through 25. So we'll use that as just a high level outline for us to to look at these these verses in this passage. So let's do that now. Let's kind of walk through a little bit of a brief synopsis of 1 Kings. And let's start with the good stuff. The golden age of Israel. the, The first 11 chapters. You know, I guess for time you can go to 1 Kings 3. 3, And we'll, we'll get there in a second, 1 Kings 3. So the first couple of chapters, we learn of the death of David. King David comes to the end of his year. Solomon, his son, will take over despite Adonijah's attempt to become king. Now, we find like David, Solomon, he's not, he's not conspiring to steal the throne. If he will become king, It will be God's clear will. And that's what ends up happening. It is God's will that Solomon becomes king. The kingdom is consolidated. His rule is consolidated and it's established firmly in his hands. And at first we see Solomon acting like a a wise, gracious, yet just king. Right before he dies, David commissions Solomon. He repeats these elements of the Davidic covenant. Just obey this God. Seek this God with all your heart. It will go well for you. We'll see what happens. Chapter three, we find Solomon already he's kind of a mixed bag. He has a true heart of love for the Lord. It seems that he, he does love and regard Yahweh, but already we see these notes of compromise. We'll see that later. For now, though, we get to a famous passage where he's a younger. He prays. He, he, he's now king over all Israel, and he seeks the Lord for wisdom. Wisdom for what? to judge the people righteously. If you remember back to 1 Samuel, the big theme of, of those who have power to use it, not for their own good, but for the good of the people to, to seek justice and righteousness in the land. And that is Solomon. I mean, we got to read his prayer. It really stands out. This, this is a, a God-fearing prayer and a prayer of wisdom. 1 Kings 3, 6 Solomon prays, he says, to, to God, you've shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father, David, yet I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. That's talking about military uh, battles. Verse eight, your servants in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. Verse nine, so give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. I Mince mean, is so special as back in verse five, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, hey, what do you want? Ask whatever you wish, almost like that, the three genie seem like, you, what do you wish for? And Solomon doesn't ask for riches or military might or power. He just asks God for wisdom and wisdom to judge righteously. That's the right answer. And God says, because you have chosen the right thing, I'm going to actually give you that which you didn't ask for. You will get riches and honor and might and peace and prosperity in addition to this divine wisdom. That's what we see right after this is the famous, you know, split the baby verdict where these two women come with a contest between whose child is whose. And he says, just split the baby. We'll find out who really, uh, who really uh, is the mother. But we see just the wisdom of Solomon at work. You end in chapters four through seven, and you start seeing that the overview of Solomon's power and wealth, just, you see the splendor when we give to God faithfulness, he, he outgives us in return. And the theme here is multiplication. It's everything is multiplying as, as God is with Solomon. Officials, people, land, food, horsemen, wisdom. We find outsiders, other nations are streaming to Israel. They're, they're bowing down before Solomon, giving tribute. The borders have expanded to the largest ever. And, and never again will they be this, this extent or uh, extended in their, in their borders. It's just a sampling of the blessing God has in store for his people if, if they, in the heart of their king, seeks him. So it was a golden age. Solomon used this time of unprecedented peace and prosperity to advance some big building projects. If you know your ancient history, building projects like this only took place in times of, kind of for obvious reasons, peace and prosperity. So he builds Jerusalem, he builds the walls, he builds his house, he builds the temple. These are all pretty ambitious. One thing kinda keep in mind though, Solomon builds his house much larger than the temple, and it takes twice as long to complete. The royal palace gets a lot more intention than the temple. The temple's still big and grand, but his house is even bigger. Might be already a little hint that Solomon is a guy who's being a lord with the power and the glory perhaps getting to his head more than it should. By the end of chapter 7 though the temple is finished. Chapters 8 and 9 big chapters that the dedication of the temple. Now that the temple comes into view. We see Solomon's words, God's response. So significant. Hopefully we've got the time for it but we'll save this for the end. We'll come back for that that special focus on the temple how it becomes such a you know dominant figure in in Israel's mind from here on out. We'll come back to that in the end. The rest of chapters 9 and 10 just continues to tell of Solomon's splendor, but starting to take a turn. He's starting to multiply the wrong things, things God told the king not to multiply, namely military might and gold for himself. It's turning a bit opulent, a bit excessive, the king should be taking God's blessings and returning it to the people and serving them in, in justice and equity. But Solomon is starting to use a lot of this wealth and power for himself. You get to chapter 11 and you get a big turning point. Let's turn there. First Kings 11. If you recall, David's turning point came in 2 Samuel 11. Solomon's turning point comes in 1 Kings 11. Does that mean anything? No, it does not. The chapter divisions were added later. They're arbitrary, but it's just something to to think about. 1 Kings 11, it says, verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said, to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. But they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. God told him precisely, don't do this. This is something you must not do. But he did. And what happened, verse 3, he had 700 wives. It's called like running in the opposite direction. <laughs> like that's, that's a lot. Uh, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Verse four, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. This is a big deal. Back in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, knowing in advance the day of kings would come, God put in the Torah a warning for future kings, not to multiply three things, not to multiply gold for yourself, not to to multiply horses, meaning military might. You should be trusting in God, not your military. And most important, do not multiply wives. Do not multiply foreign wives. It will steal your heart after their gods. A strong warning. I think I had a seminary professor who just kind of cutely summarized it as don't multiply gold, girls, and giddy up as a I can't forget it now because he said that. It just burned in my brain. I can't forget that. But that's what Solomon did. And the wives especially turned his heart away. And the verdict down in verse 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do this in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However... I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. You see a mix of of judgment and mercy here. God, for the sake of David and that covenant, he'll leave one tribe to keep the line of David alive. But there will be a severe judgment here. The rest of the nation will go astray. The rest of the chapter We find it start to happen. God starts raising up adversaries against Solomon. The golden age is starting to tarnish. Of note, later in the chapter, we won't read this, but we're introduced to a key figure named Jeroboam. He was a great warrior. And so Solomon made him an official in Israel. And God sent a prophet to speak to Jeroboam. And he told him, basically, God's going to tear the kingdom from Solomon these 10 northern tribes, he's going to tear them away. And you know what? He's going to give them to you. God will make you, Jeroboam, the king of these 10 northern tribes. This is from the hand of the Lord. Why is this happening? Because Solomon went astray. He did not give his whole heart to God like his father, David. But he holds out to Jeroboam. He's like, listen, all you have to do is trust in God with all your heart, like David. Worship him alone And he says, God will build for you an enduring house. You could be like David 2.0. You could be another father of a great kingdom. All you have to do is seek the Lord with all your heart. He's got this chance. And keep that in the back of your mind. After this, Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam takes over as king of all Israel. But this gets us into the the second section of 1 Kings. Now the decline of Israel and Judah. Golden age. It's, it's over, like period, end of sentence. It's no more because immediately thereafter, the kingdom divides. And God said, as a mercy, he would not tear the kingdom from Solomon in his lifetime, but the, that of his son. Well, he's dead. So what do you think is going to happen? And we find that in chapter 12. Rehoboam, his son, is, is wicked. He tries to assert himself over the people and, and force them to serve him even, even more. But the people rebel. The 10 northern tribes say they they refuse to follow Rehoboam as king, and they depart. Rehoboam is left as king over Judah in the south, and becomes its own little tribe nation kingdom, the the kingdom of Judah. In the north, the 10 tribes get together. They choose their own king. Who will be their king? Who becomes their king? That guy, Jeroboam. Like God said, he now becomes the first king of northern Israel. But not surprisingly, I guess, he does not listen to the word of the Lord. That prophet who gave him those great promises, he like immediately turns his back on all that. He's going to go a different direction with this. This is big. I want you to see this. Chapter 12. Jeroboam, he's he's the king now. What are you going to do? What's your first order of business? Look at verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He understands like, Hey, this is a tenuous division because look three times a year, they're commanded to go on pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem and worship. And over time, he's like, Rehoboam's going to steal their hearts away in the worship of Yahweh. This isn't going to last. He he gets how tenuous his kingship is. He's like, we can't let this happen. Verse 28. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He said, one in Bethel he put the other in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Here's what's happening here. Like I said, he knows if if all of his people are going to enemy territory, Jerusalem, three times a year to worship, like that's not a good influence for him. He needs to secure power. He's only caring about himself, his own skin, So, he's basically thinking like, I need to create my own new religious system that the people stay within our borders to worship. We need a competing religious system. That's what he creates. The focal point, not one, but two golden calves. He sets them in Dan and Bethel. Do you know why Dan and Bethel? It's the northernmost city and the southernmost city of of Israel. He puts them like the far end. You have no reason to leave these borders. Go worship within this land, this, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt. This is, this is bad. <laughs> this is pretty bad. He's, this is state-sanctioned idolatry. He creates their own priesthood, not Levites. He creates their own basically sacrificial system, their own laws, their own feasts, all in direct competition to the true worship of God in Judah to the south. All scheming just so that the people won't leave his power. This is the king leading the people astray. He didn't have to do this. He could have led them still in true worship and God would have blessed him, but he did not. This is a serious sin before God. Chapters 13 and 14, Jeroboam is warned by a prophet like, you don't want to do this. You need to turn back before it's too late. But he refused and pursued evil and depravity even further. And so God declared judgment. David or Jeroboam did not seek the Lord like David with all his heart, he saw other gods altogether and did great evil. And so God says to him, chapter 14, he will fully cut off the house of Jeroboam. Clean sweep, like your your line is is going to end 100%. Then look at this, chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. In that judgment, he also says, verse 15, for the Lord will strike Israel. As a reed is shaken in the water, he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers. He will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they've made their ashram provoking the Lord to anger. He will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam which he committed and with which he made Israel to sin. Think about that. This is the first king. This won't happen for 200 years, but from the very first king, And because of his deeds, God prophesied and promised you're going down. This kingdom will end. You're going to be exiled. You'll lose the land. Why? People earn their share of the blame. They went into idolatry as well. But look, he says this also is on account of the sins of Jeroboam. That's how serious God takes the king and the kingship as a mediator, a representative of the people that God takes worship seriously. And, we learn, well, already before it happens, why it's going to happen, idolatry. Forsaking this God. He does not take that lightly. That, that command is a big command. You shall have no other gods before me. When God said that, he meant it. And he's going to let them know. <clears throat> now, chapters 15, 16, you start getting to the cycle of the new kings. So far, the focus has been on Jeroboam and Rehoboam. But after this, it starts rattling through the, the succession of all these other kings, how long they reigned, some of what they did. But all the kings are evaluated, good or bad. We find what are called two kings of comparison. Every king hereafter is compared either to Jeroboam or David. All the kings of Israel are compared to Jeroboam. That's not a good thing. He becomes like the benchmark for evil, and most of them were at least that bad, a few were even worse. The kings of south, a little bit different. They were compared to David, meaning did they seek the Lord with all their heart like David? Just a few of them did. Most of them did not. It shows, however, that the kings are not above judgment. God sees them and he will judge them for how they lead. We go through many cycles of the kings now, north and south. It goes kind of fast, but then we get to a new king in the north and it's going to slow way down. We have a a new, especially wicked king. His name is Ahab. We find him at the end of chapter 16. And the early verdict on him, he's going to be even worse than Jeroboam. And he proves that he will be. He'll be like a new benchmark for evil. This is Ahab in the north. You get to chapter 17. And with Ahab, we're also introduced to the greatest Old Testament prophet, Elijah. And it slows way down, focusing on Ahab and Elijah, mostly Elijah. Now, the kings should have been serving God and the people, but they weren't. And so God sent them prophets to rebuke, to convict, to speak the truth. Elijah was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Never wrote anything down. He's not one of the writing prophets. We only learn, really, in 1st Saint 2nd Kings of Elijah and Elisha. But he was the chief And his authority came in the fact that he just spoke the word of God. As a prophet, God was speaking through him. And all the miracles of Elijah, from the the creating of a drought to the raising of the widow's son, they are meant to show really the power of God's word through Elijah. He really is a true prophet. He's speaking the word of God. And that word is always true and powerful and effective. Meaning, you better listen. That this is truly God's word. You had better listen to this word. But of course, the king doesn't. Chapters eighteen, nineteen. Wicked Ahab doesn't listen. He doesn't like Elijah. He wants to kill Elijah. Because he keeps bothering him. And convicting him. And so you get the big showdown. You're probably familiar with this, that Elijah versus all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, that the showdown, who's let's find out who has the real God here who can call down fire on this altar and the prophets of Baal can't do anything. But in a, an amazing miracle, Elijah prays and, and calls down fire from heaven to consume the altar, just showing this is the one true God. Now at stake here is God's name, but God shows himself great. Even still though, Ahab is hardened and his wife Jezebel is even more hardened. Even after this event, she resolves, she's going to behead Elijah. It's like, she's not going to let him live. She resolves to kill Elijah. So he flees Elijah. The great prophet has his own moment, kind of like Peter of weakness and despair. He flees, he fears, and he genuinely thinks he's the last remaining believer. In all Israel, like who's left? Who's left that actually worships Yahweh alone? He thinks he's alone. He feels it's over. All is lost. But God is gracious with them. He encourages him. He restores him. And God tells Elijah, "No, I I still have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In one sense, that's a good thing. God is is faithful to preserve a remnant. In another sense, that's not a lot when it comes to the whole nation. There's just 7,000 left. Nonetheless, God will be faithful to preserve a remnant to the end. And God tells Elijah, don't worry about Ahab. I'm taking him out too. And that's the rest of of the book. Chapters 20 through 22. That's what happens. Ahab is wicked. Jezebel, even more wicked. She has no sense of justice. The final verdict. Chapter 21, verse 25. It says, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. A little lesson there on your influences, whom you allow to influence you. But Elijah pronounces judgment on them both. It all comes to pass literally. First Kings ends with the death of Ahab. Another you know, prophet warned him, don't go to battle. But he didn't listen. That theme just carries through. These prophets are speaking the word of God. God's word, it's, it's true. It's serious. It never fails. You, you're given a chance. Listen, this is your chance. It will go well. There's blessing if you just heed the voice of the Lord, but, but Ahab doesn't and words never fail. And first Kings ends here. It's an arbitrary division, but I think it's, it's plenty for us to, to finish for now. No, it's not too late to, to turn the ship around for Israel. And Judah, if they would just heed the voice of the prophets and the word of the Lord and seek this Lord with all their heart like David, like it would go well for them. They would find a kingdom of, of peace and prosperity and security and blessing. But you read Second Kings, you find that, that is, that's just not what, what's going to happen. Well, before we finish here, I think we can squeeze in a, a little bit of a special focus because the temple is just such a big object, focal point, in the remainder of Israel's history. Even after it's destroyed, it's eventually rebuilt. In the time of Christ, there was a second temple, and just understanding the temple itself is a big deal. We don't have a lot of time, but go back to chapter 8 and let's just cover a little bit of the temple and what it means for Israel. And so far, the center of Israel's worship, was the tabernacle. It's like a portable temple built during the Exodus, but largely ignored. And the ark ignored. Israel had not made the worship of God a central priority, not until David, who loved the Lord, did. The ark come back to priority, and he desired to build a lasting permanent house for, for God. But God said David wouldn't build that temple. His son would and indeed Solomon is the one to build the temple that's that's chapter 8 here the construction is finished the ark is brought into the holy of holies and in that moment what happens the glory cloud of god comes and fills the temple god is signifying with a little visual presence that that he approves he's there he's placing his presence in the midst of his people his glory is in their midst if they would just honor him he his presence would be a blessing not a curse. That sword cuts both both ways though. If you don't regard this God as holy, his presence will curse you. After that, Solomon turns and blesses the people. Then verses 22 through 53, you get Solomon's prayer and homework. You know, go read that. Meditate on Solomon's prayer here. It's rich. It's filled with truth and reflection. Verses 22 through 53. Just a few highlights. God's covenant faithfulness. Like verse 23, where he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you, uh, like you in heaven above, or on earth beneath. Keeping covenant, showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. That's who this God is. And, and Solomon's calling on God to continue to be faithful to his promises and bless the people. Solomon Probably doesn't know he's acting like a prophet, but his words become prophetic because he knows the day will come when his people will not be faithful. They will not be on their end, faithful to follow this God. So in this prayer, he calls on God to just keep his ears open to the cries of the people that when they repent and return and pray toward this place, this temple that God would hear and forgive. That's verse 30. And, and uh, all around it. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, hear in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. And Solomon knows God doesn't live in this temple. Heaven and earth can't contain him, let alone this temple, but he knows God has just chosen the place's name in this place. And he wants the people to regard it as well. In the end though, Solomon's words would become even more prophetic, you know, down in verse 46. He goes on to say, looking forward, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. And you're angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they're taken away captive to the land of the enemy. Far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they've been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We've sinned and have committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies, we've taken them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you've given to their fathers, the city, which you've chosen the house, which I've built for your name. Then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. Make them objects of compassion before those who've taken them captive, uh, that they may have compassion on them. That's a lot. It's a mouthful. But you see what it's saying. He's looking forward to the time. Remember, Israel's reading this. That's already happened. By the time Israel's reading this account in 1st and 2nd Kings, that is exactly what happened. What message is being sent? Think of all of their wicked deeds. Again, the Morse being Child sacrifice, like that is pretty extreme wickedness and and, uh, immorality in their idolatry. But to think God could still forgive them. That's the nature of this God. He's righteous and just, but he's forgiving. If they would truly repent and seek him with all of their heart and soul and pray to him, he promises his people he's not going to cut off his ears. He will hear and forgive and restore What do you think Israel is being told to do here as they sit now in Babylon, licking their wounds like, oh, this is what you need to do now that you might be restored. It's not too late because God is faithful. Turn, turn now before uh, you, you really do perish. This would happen 70 years after exile. uh, As the people did seek the Lord, they were allowed to return to the land, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. That's for another day. But God will always be faithful to his word. That includes blessing. That includes judgment. And so may we, his people, likewise be faithful and true to his word that we would receive his blessing and not his judgment. After all this, the temple is dedicated. You see chapter 9. God visits Solomon in a dream after this. And he tells him, he encourages him. Basically, you've done well. Make sure you too seek me with all your heart. That blessing is held out, but so is that warning of judgment. If you or your sons go astray, I will bring these curses upon you to judge. A strong warning is given in the end. Uh, another warning of captivity. Uh, you can't say God didn't warn you. When it comes to Israel and all they're, they're going through, the loss of the land, you can't say you weren't warned. We didn't cover it today, maybe next week, but even back in Deuteronomy, God warns them the day will come where if they're, if they're not faithful to this covenant, they will lose the land. They will be exiled. None of this should have been a surprise, but but that's exactly what happened. We don't have time for a lengthy application section, but just, you know, we're, we'll reflect more on the, the lessons of 1st, 2nd Kings next week. But already, just as the New Testament urges us, you do well to learn from Israel's history, this theological history history from their past. We see the history of God. He's good. He's faithful. He's gracious. He's a God who has chosen this people. He set his love on them. He won't forsake them, but he's still holy and just and righteous, and he will discipline. He wants, above all, what have we seen in Samuel and Kings over and over again? What's what's he after? What does God want from this people? He just wants their hearts, all of their hearts, and and the entirety of their heart given to him alone in this worship, this devotion. Do not go astray. Serve no other gods before him. That, that's what set David apart. He was a great sinner too, but he truly gave his whole heart to the Lord. We call that faith. This was a, a true worshiper. That's what invites God's blessing. But when that's not there, that, that's what invites God's curse. So beware idolatry. That's what Paul cites in 1 Corinthians as the lesson of Israel. Beware idolatry. Flee from idols. Idols today don't have to be little wooden figures. Anything that takes God's central place in your life, just beware it. It's a snare. It's a trap. We see God is good. He has unimaginable blessing in store for his people eternally who seek him and love him with all their heart. But the only people who will find that blessing are those who seek him and love him and obey him with all their heart. And so I, I just pray that's you, that you would not fall under the discipline of God's hand like Israel, but, but learn from these scriptures to, to choose for yourself whom you will serve and follow God today with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and see his glorious presence in your lives. Well, we're over time now, so I'll have to end it here. I'm still kind of amazed we even get through these studies each week. There's just so much to cover, but hope you are benefit, benefited from them. Let's finish in a word of prayer and we'll look forward to that really the conclusion next week with 2 Kings. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and this history, which again, really is just your history. We're seeing the history of God and his interaction with with his people. We now are your people, Lord, who are those called and chosen to be in Christ and his church. And we we need to derive lessons on how we are to live before you here. These words are so ever relevant. And though some may see them as just plain old history and facts and boring details. No, there's there's something here we, we must learn of who you are and who we are to be in response. Seeing your great grace with which you've chosen us and the lengths to which you went to save us in Christ, to to purchase us and even give us new hearts. We especially have no excuse to not serve you and follow you and love you with all of our hearts and seek you. We fall short too. Like Solomon said, there's not a man who's not a sinner, but we thank you for your grace and your mercy that we can go to you and be forgiven. May all this just continue to elicit greater love and devotion. Help us, Lord, to put on this heart that is is just entirely devoted to you, that that we don't hold back, that we don't keep and guard our heart for something else. Like Solomon, turn our hearts away to some other thing, but may we just be purified in hearts that love you above all else and pursue you. Then we will enjoy your blessing and peace in this life and then the life to come. Purify us as your people as we learn from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.